0: Hello, welcome to In The Pink, the podcast with me, Natalie Pinkham, where I speak to all sorts of different people from a variety of backgrounds to find out what their regrets may be, what their hopes are for the future, unfulfilled ambitions, dreams and their general view of the world. Now, my guest this week is Gabby Logan. She is an absolute dynamo of the broadcasting world. She hasn't just broken the glass ceiling, but more like smashed through it. Her career has been rich and varied and continues to go from strength to strength. And somehow she manages all of that on screen while still being a hands-on mother to teenage twins off it. So I clearly have a lot to learn from this woman. She is one of the hardest working people you are ever likely to meet. And she explains to me how the loss of her brother is a major motivation for her to continue to achieve in life. She also tells me how that tragedy had such a profound impact on her parents' marriage and her family as a whole. She also discusses sexism, strictly, and the Six Nations segregation in the Logan household. Sit back, relax and enjoy hearing about life according to Gabby Logan. Well, Gabby, thank you for welcoming into what is an astonishingly beautiful home I mean seriously though it feels like we are deep in the countryside and yet you can see just about the skyline of London
1: yeah we we discovered the skyline of London after we moved here actually because it was quite overgrown and Kenny has a digger and he was on the digger one day and um, he looked and saw the shard through the trees and he said and I'd been not complaining because it's first world problems but I said oh it's a shame we haven't got a view of anything and he said I'm (laughs) going to get you a view and then he cleared a few trees we've planted many more since he cleared a few trees and there it was so on some days it's incredible you can see almost every building you see Wembley and then beyond you see like the city skyline New Year's Eve, we see the fireworks, and oh then about thirty seconds later, we see them on the well, tens seconds later, we see them on the TV because obviously there's a, there's a satellite delay. So um, yeah, it's it's very um, very convenient place to live actually because we're not far from Heathrow and we kind of need to be near motorways. So um, we moved out about six years
0: ago. But not just convenient, I mean,
1: perfect for the children. What a place to grow up. Yeah, they're very lucky, aren't they? They um, when we lived in, we didn't really live in London, London. We lived in Richmond, which is a beautiful part of the world. And um, we, Kenny had had this thing about going back to his roots because he was a farmer, and he just wanted a little field to play with. Is what he said. I don't want much, just a field. (laughs) So we got just a whole field. Yeah, just a field. (laughs) And um, I said, you can't be, you know, you don't want forty or fifty acres even because you know you're not going to be able to have the time to actually deal with it. But he loves being outside, and I think he wanted the kids to have a little bit of the experience Mm. he had growing Mm. up. Mm. I always grew up in cities, Mm. and so it did take me two winters to get used to Mm. you know living um, out here. I mean, I'm making it sound like we're in you know Bodmin Moor or something. <laughs>
0: We're not at all, but just when you're a city person. Yeah, yeah. But, um... That's so true, actually, because my husband was born in Hammersmith and he's not that bothered about moving out of the city whereas I'm craving it because I was brought brought up up in the countryside. It's funny
1: Lois is an absolute country bumpkin my daughter who's 13 she just loves everything to do with animals she she would have a menagerie I mean she as it is we've got a little Shetland pony here we've got some sheep and the small animals seem to be dying and I've noticed we're not replacing them like the latest hamster died after a few years and she wasn't that bothered about replacing so maybe she's changing slightly Mm -hmm. because it was always we had to run down to pets at home three minutes after the animal died to replace them in the past and then um, she rides she loves show jumping so she just loves being outside she'll spend hours going out doing what are you doing she builds a show jumping course for the dogs and then (laughs) takes dogs out Ruben's I think slightly less so and yet he'll say to me oh I can't imagine living in a city again which is really funny because I I thought he was more of the kind of kid that would want to be around the metropolis you know he likes dipping his toe in so um they've
0: got time for
1: that absolutely and they, I said you will live in a city at some point I'm sure you'll, yeah. you'll live in a city but you know we'll go to into central London They're like, it's so
0: noisy <laughs>
1: it's amazing what are
0: you talking about yeah so what about your own childhood what are your memories of it and obviously growing up uh, as the daughter of a professional footballer tell us what that experience was like
1: well it was a very city-based existence because obviously football clubs are in cities and we moved around a lot and he played for Leeds United when I was born and he was only 22 when I was born or 23 maybe he'd just turned 23 and by the time I was four we moved to Coventry that was his first big move and we we lived there for a few years and then we went to Vancouver and he went to Spurs he went to London so there was by the time I was 10 there'd been quite a few clubs and quite a few moves and it was um you know people say oh what was it like being the daughter of a famous footballer but you don't know any different so Mm. I knew he had this job that meant that he could pick us up from school you know because training was finished by 2 o'clock and a lot of the dads didn't pick up their kids from school in the late 70s you know Um, and times have changed obviously and you do see a lot more dads at the school gate but then it was quite unusual Mm. but my mum always says it was a bit like being a single parent because in some ways because he would be, he never went to parents' evening. He always seemed to have a match and, you know, he was always away weekends he was playing. And so there was quite um, uh a... a a different experience I think for her probably as a mum and also if he moved he had to move the next day you know if he moved clubs he had to be there within 24 hours she couldn't pack up a house with four children and move in 24 hours and buy a new house so we were always a few months behind him and I think that probably um gave us all quite a bit of resilience you know because if you're moving Mm -hmm. schools and you're moving houses and she created a kind of adventure around it and made us all feel like it was something you know to be excited about so it was, it was a, I would say, you know, idyllic in many ways, you know, I can't ever remember not enjoying school, not enjoying the sport, not enjoying our lifestyle. We weren't like modern day footballers, you know, we weren't rolling in uh, cash. It wasn't quite like it is now <laughs> for a, a player of his level would be on, you know, a huge salary, but we had a comfortable life, you mm. know, we went on nice holidays and um I don't think I ever felt like you know even though my mum and dad were very much both very working class wanted us to value um you know the pound and we didn't we didn't have a a, um we weren't awash with luxuries but at the same time I never felt probably how they did in their childhood that you didn't know where your shoes were coming from you Mm. know my dad was brought up in a council estate in Cardiff so he had a very different upbringing to us. Mm.
0: Was it tough though moving when you, if you're jumping from school to school, you know, making friendships and bedding in? It's quite disruptive in a way.
1: Yeah, I think um, we were quite lucky really because we seemed to find friends and I think we were a bit of a gang as well. At first there were three of us and then there were four and then my brother Daniel died when he was 15 but for the most of our childhood we were close in age. We were three born under three years so there's one of us in every year in the school practically, you know, and so I think we we had each other, my sister mm. and I are eleven months apart, so even though we were not wanting to have the same friends, it's quite funny, isn't it? When you look back and think, why do we we were so keen to have different friendship groups? But at least you knew the other one was there and you know. I think if you're into sport and clubs and things as well at school, you get involved in groups and mm. you know, you want to and I loved school. I really enjoyed just being in that environment, learning. You know, I liked the structure of the day. I was always kind of wanting the next level. You know, couldn't look forward to the next year where you could get an extra, you know, privilege, whatever it was, having your own pencil case. You know, whatever mm-hmm. it was, I just I loved that part of it and wanting to be kind of swotty and um, impress teachers. I think uh, that's
0: called ambition, <laughs> is it? <Yeah. laughs> It's which, probably called quite annoying, actually. No, never, never, never. But you also had gymnastics from a very early age. Yeah. Well, we had a lot of
1: sports, and then when we went to live in Vancouver, I was eight, and we did a lot more gymnastics there. But we did a lot of uh, track and field and swimming, and my brother played um, like hockey, and then, which is the kind of they did it on a surface before they went onto ice, and so because ice hockey was huge, obviously, in Vancouver. And so by the time we came back from then, tennis became my absolute number one passion. And then we came back to England and we we moved to Leeds and there were no indoor courts at all at the time and it was winter and it was cold and I, I I remember having the yellow pages and trying to find a tennis club and ringing this one there was one indoor court but it was a private club my mum said I wasn't going to you know we're not joining it one court it had and um that was me in tennis finished pretty much because I'd wanted to be my hero was Tracy Austin and I wanted to be you know playing at Wimbledon and I was nine years old and I was or ten maybe by this point point. So I went along with my sister. She she wanted to go more to gymnastics. So I thought, okay, well, I'll do that until, you know, until it improves, the tennis. <laughs> and, um, and ended up, that was it. I was doing, first of all, three nights a week, then four nights a week. And before you know where you are, you're 13 years old and you're training six days a week. And it is your all-consuming passion. And I think that when you're that age, you know, you've, you just, if you get into something, mm. it becomes... It's in you. You can't Mm. even, you know, separate yourself from the sport and everything Mm. I did and thought about was, right, how am I gonna get my schoolwork done at, you know, before five so I can train till eight and or am I gonna get my schoolwork done in break time? And it has to be a self motivating thing. You can't be told to do that. I know that as a parent now, that if you're constantly with teenage children telling them to do something, they don't wanna do it, you know. Mm. So I would never force my kids. To, to kind of pursue their sport it has to come from them I think so,
0: so what influence did your parents have on your your choice of the sport C- could it have been any sport yeah
1: yeah it could have been yeah. it could have been I mean, they were not my dad couldn't understand gymnastics you know he thought it was very odd that I wanted to spend so much time on a sport that was never going to lead to a job because for him sport was a way out mm. he was a you know that his family I you mean know, I'm not just kind of I'm not playing on this they were his mum was back three cleaning jobs his dad worked during the day as a docker and in the evenings was ran a working man's club they lived in a council house in Cardiff with five children who became three they lost two children as, as babies and they he used to come home from school he was a latchkey kid and the house was darkness and he would take a an old football out and play in the street and you know there was the way out, well, there was no way out. It was, it was basically going to be manual labour or he didn't have any professionals in the family. Nobody had been to university. And so he had a talent and mm. he worked really hard at it. So for him sport was a way to earn a living and Mm. get yourself out of something yeah Yeah. and so i think now of course he sees it differently and eventually he saw what we were getting from the sport wasn't it was more than that and Mm -hmm. it wasn't you know even though gymnasts nowadays actually the beth tweddles and lewis smiths of the world will be on reality tv shows they'll earn a living they'll have sponsorship i'm not saying that you know they're in any way shape or form the same as you know rugby football or cricket but they are at least able to monetize their mm. talents mm. when we were gymnasts you know if you were lucky which i was i got on a grant from sport aid which helped me get to competitions and things but it wasn't a sport that you did to earn a living mm. you know
0: but was it hard that he didn't sort of endorse it then for you in uh, a way
1: I, it, a little bit i mean i remember i was telling lois my daughter this the other day she couldn't believe it because we spend so much time taking her to her competitions mm. and watching her Uh, my mum came to one competition in the whole of my gymnastics career and my dad never came to any and uh, when I was in the Commonwealth Games they were watching it on television in bed because it was early morning in the UK it was in Auckland and apparently my mum turned to my dad and said do you think we should have gone (laughs) and my um and my but you see the thing is she had a two-year-old three-year-old at the time my brother Jordan my sister my brother you know it was a long way to go. It was cost a lot of money you were like to get 17, there. Seventeen, weren't you at yeah, the time? Yeah, so you yeah.
0: needed their support. Yeah,
1: um, um, but there was the support came through um, the the old mum's taxi. You know, I yeah. was taken everywhere I needed to be, okay. and yeah. I was never. Although as I got older, I started getting the bus to training and things like that. But I was always picked up and dropped off, and you know that that was that was enough. You know what I mean? That was kind of, and also there was, obviously she was proud that we were doing something, but she wasn't from a really sporty kind of family or background. So I guess for her, it was a, she said she was an ice skater when she was younger but there was never any opportunity for her to to go and express that so I think she enjoyed us doing it because it kept us out of trouble you know we were kind of we were good girls we didn't you know we didn't want to go out we were too tired we just we just carried on training so I suppose in that respect it was good but my brother was also my brother Daniel who died he was a very very talented footballer he'd signed Mm. for Leeds United he was playing all the time and he would, he was asked to go on tour with wales under 18s and so he was he was pursuing a sporting career as well mm-hmm. so she had three kids performing at quite high levels to, you know three international children effectively mm-hmm. you know so she she was just ferrying us around and the husband and, you know and he, he was let's then, not forget your yeah dad my dad was obviously at the time managing wales or managing yeah. swansea or managing bradford wherever he was and so he was traveling around so And she had this massive Peugeot. Do you remember those massive Peugeot estates? They had about 95 seats in them. And it was always full of children and gymnastics equipment. And she was running a business as well. She always wanted to be a property developer, and she just started her business. So... I always, she was always doing post at five o'clock and trying to get things to the post office. And I was always trying to get to gym. And I always remember being in her office, rushing her to get me to gym because I hated being late, you know. And eventually my coach started picking me up because I think my coach was sick of me being late. (laughs) I was always running into the gym when everybody was starting to warm up. And, um, And she was trying to juggle all of that. You know, and her husband and everything mm-hmm. else and trying to feed everybody and so um so it wasn't it wasn't easy and it's never I don't think it's got any easier for mums who've got no. sporty kids who our weekends are completely and utterly taken over. if I'm not working. I'm either watching rugby in the rain or I am at a horse show. That's, there's no, you know, kind of, oh, what are you doing at the weekend? And Kenny always gets to Sunday night and he looks at me about nine o'clock when some drama's starting. We sit down and we kind of go, oh. <laughs> and I'm with we, the week again.
0: <laughs> and fall asleep before it starts. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: Half past nine we we're in bed yeah. on Sunday night.
0: Oh, gorgeous. <laughs> the thought of that. Oh, I love it. Um, let's talk a bit more about your brother, Daniel. I, I mean, a horrific impact to lose a sibling and... Uh, Obviously, for a parent to lose him, just tell us about his death.
1: It changed everything in our family forever because we—I wouldn't say my parents had the perfect marriage, but they were really good at. They were quite both quite passionate about what they did, and they had very um, uh, strong work ethics, and you know, and they were about family. And so, when my brother died, he was my dad's following, literally, quite literally, in my dad's footsteps, you know. And so, my dad was just. Devastated. Oh, of course, my mum, we were all devastated, but my dad retreated within himself almost and became quite um, isolated. And he didn't want to... It was almost like he was physically isolating himself. He'd go back to Wales, he was managing Wales, didn't want to be in the house even. My mum had probably two months of proper physical kind of incapacity, crushed with grief, you know, she couldn't move. And she didn't do any, you know, she just... I remember one day she always says, "Oh, it was about 10 days, I said, I think you should wash your hair and she just couldn't even you know she was always a very glamorous and very um you know well turned out chic woman and she just couldn't physically move and so for the immediate impact was was quite stark and then as things start to kind of life starts to move on it was very noticeable obviously the way that they were dealing with his death was was incredibly different and she went on a much more um physical journey uh spiritual journey trying to Find out the questions of the universe and answers to those questions, and why, you know, why would this happen, and what does it mean, and where are we all going, and what's it about, and you know, kind of speaking to rabbis or priests or, um, you know, anybody that she felt could help her, and and not in a kind of hysterical way. She just was interested in more than she had been before, and then um, my my dad was, as I say, less open to that, and so ine- inevitably over time, um, the marriage. It took a long time. It was a very, very slow peeling of the plaster. But um, by the time I was 30, so it was 11 years later they were separated.
0: So you you directly attribute your your brother's death to the to the beginning of the breakdown of their marriage. Yeah,
1: I think so. I mean, just b- because a lot of people separate after the death of yeah, a child, yeah. and um, and I can see exactly why. Mm. Because you have this very unusual situation, especially a younger child. You know, you have this situation where you all your married life you know you've leaned on each other for different things Mm -hmm. and suddenly there's something that is equally you know if you have a problem at work and you come Mm -hmm. home your husband will say to you don't worry this is you know and then you have a he has something that going on you know but this is something that is absolutely unique to the two of you Mm -hmm. and in equal measure you Mm -hmm. know Mm -hmm. um and then obviously as siblings around as well we were all dealing with our own you know grief Mm -hmm. and our journey and so I think um he he was always quite a big drinker and you know he he drank more and it that didn't help mm. never does <laughs> and, and, um, and,
0: he, and he's still struggling with that even yeah, now he,
1: he's um he's not as healthy as as mm. he could be and mm. you know which is for us obviously is um it's hard because we've tried many many times to help him on, on that front but he's on a path he wants to be on so mm. you know you have to kind of ex- there's a point where you, you just have to accept when you've been through lots and lots of different scenarios that that's the way he wants to be but he's um he lives quite close to my mum and you know she looks out for him you know I think when you've been with somebody and married that long mm. and they were married for 28 years mm. so you know it's a long time a long and they've time. been through that experience so um um I think uh I think you you know you never lose caring about no, somebody no, no. and um so my sister lives in the states and my other brother lives in leeds so you know there's there's some kind of nucleus of of the family there. Mm. but when you think we were a family of six you know we were all mm. in the same place so yeah i think it is it's and i know quite a few people you know that have lost siblings and what's happened to parents and it's it's every every family is different every family mm. and i think circumstances of the death also can maybe uh, affect the way mm. the family operates mm. afterwards but um but it's not i don't think it's unusual that relationships are tested to the point of breaking really
0: and in your brother's case it was a problem with his heart he was playing football in the garden wasn't he yeah he he was just
1: playing football with my dad and um, they were about to my parents were about to go out for dinner I was having a gap here I was living in London my brother who Jordan who's um, now 32 he was six and um the three of them my dad was this was the one thing a, a kind of feature of our childhood we played in the garden sport almost every night after dinner so my dad would set up a tennis court out of some jumpers or he would make a rounders pitch or you know we'd have running races there was always some sport going on and it was pitting us against each other all the time as well mm-hmm. we were always you know there's this competitiveness in the garden so but we'd reached the age now where um, i was gone my sister was modeling in tokyo or some if she was in tokyo um And so Jordan, Daniel had said to my dad, oh, before you go out to get dinner, just come and have a quick kickabout in the garden. And it was bank holiday Monday and they'd golfed in the morning. They'd watched the um, Wentworth um, PGA in the afternoon. And so they'd had a really nice day together. And um, so he went out to the garden and they'd been playing for a few minutes when he went over to um, get a ball that had gone into the long grass. And he fell over and that was it. And um, there were no physical signs ever before then so he was incredibly fit the march before this is the may he'd come and stay with me in london and we'd gone for a run on wimbledon common and i was only my early, i was 19 you know mm. so i was fairly fit um but i couldn't keep up with you know he was incredibly fit he could run he would run backwards when i was running with him because he was like he was teasing me about how slow i was and but i was doing like you know at the time i was doing half marathons in 50 minutes and stuff so you know mm. i wasn't i wasn't um unfit he mm. was just super fit or super sporty and my mum would say to his friends he had an incredible group of friends and my mum would say to them afterwards the boys they come around all the time after he died there were three or four of them that came around for months and months mm. they just sit in the house sit in the pool room where they played snooker sit with my dad just kind of wanted to be around mm. him and or his where he was and um mum would say to them what did you must have seen him did he ever like hold his chest as if he was when you're playing football did he ever hold did he ever complain of cramp or did he and they were like no he never he just went like a durasol you know kind of bunny he would just keep going and and so there was nothing none of us could you know everybody starts racking their brains Mm. thinking of that moment where we should have seen a sign or
0: and did that make it harder in a way to process
1: we, uh, you don't really, um, it made it on, if, if you have a slightly, even slightly logical brain,
0: mm.
1: it does because you think, well, that, I mean, that's just, mm. you know, whatever you tell me. I remember sitting down at our dining table with my mum, my dad and the coroner. He came with the report about 10 days later. Must have been before we buried him, obviously. And he read the report to us. And I was just sat there looking at him thinking, whatever you tell me, whatever medical words you, you put on this, mm. it just makes no sense mm. because... How can somebody be that physically healthy and well and look so great, and his heart let him down you know mm. it's like it's like he had something in you know this toxic thing inside yeah. him that we couldn't see and and, and didn't deserve yeah there, no, there no, yeah there was no yeah there was no kind of uh, he hadn't done anything no, to elicit no, that no. and no. there was no certainly no lifestyle kind mm. of choices that made him unhealthy and he lived for football he was so passionate about it by all accounts incredibly talented But also my dad used to say that he was the only person that he could, and my dad was managing Wales, that he said he's one of the few people I can sit down who's not actually a manager and watch a game with because he reads the game so well. Mm. He's got this kind of great vision and he was a deep-lying midfielder and he was really, um, you know, a captain kind of material. And my dad just, you know, really, my dad's really harsh with, you know, his critique, but he was always rated what he had. So I think for my dad you know to have that real bond you know mm. and see you know his his prodigy you know mm-hmm. um go uh, without any kind of warning um so it was he was a month away from actually starting at league united you know oh his dream God. and so there's one part of me that used to think well okay if he'd had a scan on his heart a month before and they said he needs an emergency heart transplant he would probably never have been able to play football you know, because yeah, the chances of him getting the true. heart yep. that he, you know, wouldn't yep. have actually been... If he'd had that six months before, they'd have put him onto drugs that would have meant he couldn't play sport to any great level, you know. Mm. So there was a bit of me that kind of was trying to find some mm. solace mm. in that actually the light... He lived the life he wanted to live. Mm. And without, you know, kind of... W- what if we'd found it a year before? What if we found it... Actually, that wouldn't... He wouldn't have been living... I mean, we would Obviously, the positivity would have, you know, mm. we'd have driven, but it was... He never knew that he couldn't play football. Yeah. You know, he he died not knowing. In blissful ignorance yeah. in a way. That yeah. he him, yeah. Yeah. I think that it would have been if you'd said to him a year before, you're gonna live but you're not gonna living I can't live without football. You know, that would mm. his fourteen year old brain at
0: the time wouldn't mm. have been able to understand mm. that. So But did it, it kind of compound your sadness when you think of what could have been, you know, when well, you think was, how many caps you could have got for yeah, Wales oh, well, and all you, the rest of
1: it. When you start you know, I started at Sky about five years four years later so it was 92 four years later because i started in 96 so at the start of working there on football it was kind of his contemporaries were coming Mm. through so all you know what it's like when you're doing your stats and you're looking at people's metrics and their birthday and and they were all born kind of in the year he was Mm. born and then you know, coming through, watching people who, were and League United had won the Premier, well, they won the league the year he died, which was the um, first year before the Premier, the last year before the Premier League. So they were equivalent at the top of the league, you know, mm. and they were in Europe for the next few years afterwards. So all these players playing in Europe and stuff for the following few mm. years, and, and just not, th- and wondering where his career would have gone. And now even, sometimes I think, would he have been a young manager you know would he have been would he have been a you know an Eddie Howe type manager Mm. would he have been where would he have been in his career and would he have would he have had children would he have you know would he have had um the kind of the the life that I envisaged him having you know but you can't you know you can't do that to yourself because obviously it it didn't happen but Mm. when I was yeah yeah. it was much harder when I was first at Sky because I I genuinely used to think god they there is age yeah. and you know I would be talking about him or you know so uh,
0: so how do you think it changed you do you think it made you more motivated yeah more I mean I was
1: already quite it's hard when you're 19 you don't know really what you're going to be like as an adult. Mm. I think probably had a quite a good idea of what I was going to be like in, you know in terms of how I'd been with my education and sport and stuff I was quite motivated and determined but I think it may gave me an urgency which mm. um in some ways wasn't as healthy as you know because I kind of felt like I had to get everything done very quickly Mm. because otherwise um I I might not have time you know Mm. there was I think it wasn't a conscious thing but maybe somewhere in the back of my mind I was on a time frame you know Mm. um so get going with the career you know Mm. I mean I met my husband relatively young you know met Kenny when I was 25 and we got married by the time we were 28 so but that wasn't you know by then I was starting to be a little bit more relaxed mm. with myself but there was definitely the beginning of my career a feeling that I was living two lives. Was there, was there
0: any concern that there was a, a genetic link? Uh,
1: well we did have we were all tested right. and um, and I've had um, the kids tested as well my kids tested but they were told us at the time there's a 50% chance that it's genetic and a 50% that it's an aberration and that Daniel's was an aberration that just had mutated his body had just developed this and
0: so he hadn't had it all his life no my god
1: so um so we were tested not knowing yeah um and found out because I think that was also quite hard for my parents like what if one of them had been the carrier that had then you know um so I think they were quite relieved in a way that mm. that also my little brother he then carried on being tested at saint george's in tooting for the next few years because they just didn't know maybe if there was something that kind of had developed and that he was the next because it's quite male as well right that there was is there because a, a lot of the cases that my mum my was receiving letters for months after some people who'd who'd lost children in the same way and 90 percent were boys really? so um so she obviously was very keen that jordan because he was only six and he ended up being he was a goalkeeper and played a lot of football that he carried on being tested and mm-hmm. and none of us have we're like it's very um you know it, for us it's a it's lucky obviously mm-hmm. that we don't have uh, a genetic family link but obviously horrific for families where some um, remember my mum opening a letter of a lady who'd
0: lost two sons oh my god two years apart and unbearable um, yeah so you channeled a lot of energy into your career. I want to talk about your career now because I remember seeing you and it must have been probably 15 years ago now. I saw you in a pub in Parsons Green in London. And I remember calling you a trailblazer, which, really? yeah. And the funny thing was, is that you're not much older than me. And yet I really have always looked up to you. Oh. Um, no, genuinely. and And it's not just because... You know you've got this great work ethic and the discipline and application, but you definitely seem to spearhead some kind of movement for women in sport. Were you kind of aware of that at any stage? Did you feel as if there was a change of tide that women just seemed to be taken more seriously in sport
1: it's It's funny when you look back um when I look back at the kind of early years of my career. Um, I genuinely, I'd sit down with journalists. Say when I was getting new shows on ITV, or when I left Sky, and you know, at that point I was 24, and I was doing a football primetime football show on ITV, and all these journalists, from Guardian and the Times stuff, they say, "Woman in a man's world," kept you know, "Woman in a man's mm. world," and and That's I was boring to th- well. <laughs> back then, I was kind of even then, I was thinking, "Oh, I guess, I guess there aren't that many women yeah, doing yeah. this," you know, but I didn't want to have that, you know, almost that burden of mm. feeling. So I just would almost neutralize my gender. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? And go, (laughs) I just want to be good at my job and I want to be judged for what I do. I don't want to be judged for being a good woman. I want to be good at what I do. And I was trying to kind of constantly, but even now, I still get asked Mm. by people about that but I think the landscape has changed dramatically Mm. obviously you know in terms of female voices and commentary women doing all kinds of you know sports Mm. whether it's yourself in formula one and and obviously there are other women in in, uh, lots more women in football rugby you know the male dominated sports if you like because you know it was no good to me if we just had women doing gymnastics or women, and I love doing when mm. I get asked be on mm. the BBC or doing ice skating or doing things that felt like mm. they were kind of more feminine sports mm. it, uh, to, to have the playing field leveled out a bit there has to be a crossover and I also feel the same about I'll be doing the Women's World Cup next year in France and I think it's important we had a brief chat with the production team about whether or not there would be um, male pundits on the team and I think it's really important that there are because I oh, would you know yeah. now, now that we've had a major breakthrough with Alex Scott working on the BBC as a pundit in the summer at the Men's World Cup then we 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 need to carry on having male voices talking about women's football mm. because it's that cross pollination mm. and that says yeah it's it's all right to watch this because yeah. you know it's entertaining and it's interesting yeah. yeah we actually want to be it's here not, we're yeah. not here because we're being forced to yeah. be here yeah. um, I remember at the Olympics in 2016 Reuben watching my son who's a rugby uh, player he was watching the women's sevens final and I walked him watch him watching it. And I realised he was watching it because it was just amazing. Not yes. because it was, you know, it was just great sport. Mm. And he, he didn't see them as, oh, it's women's rugby. He mm. just said, this match is incredible. And I said something about him watching women's sp- And he just went, it's just great rugby. Yeah. It was not even on his radar. And I was like, hallelujah. You know, it's kind of... that. But it's taken a while
0: to get to that point And it's, you know, and that there's all sorts of arguments as to how it has. But mm. it's whether, you know, this sort of chicken and egg thing that you've got to be producing good sport for Ruben to want to of watch course, it and you can't have. do that without yeah, investment in yeah, the sport and yeah. you know and
1: people televising it. if you're in a minority sport and, and by that you know in the landscape foot, women's football 10 years ago was almost like a minority sport mm. if you're in minority sports you feel like I mean I know because I was a gymnast you always feel you're not getting enough coverage you feel like you want people to enjoy your sport as much as you do and I understand that because I came from that that particular pool if you like but the other side of it is then the, you know the quality has to be good enough to attract mm-hmm. the numbers, and once you get a level of quality, then you get investment outside of you know marketing and uh, the kind of people that want to align their product with your with your sport then you can start to attract more eyeballs whether it is television viewers Mm. or whether it is people going to the event now if you've got an event that is a packed stadium already that tells the television viewer this is something that's worth seeing you know so because if you if you've got an empty stadium why should the person at home really care you know they're going to think well nobody could be bothered to go (laughs) why should I be bothered to to watch it so so it's getting those kind of bums on seats which I think women's football has done really well they've taken themselves down to slightly smaller stadiums in the WSL so that they don't you know there's no point Arsenal ladies playing at the Emirates mm. because they're not going to sell them out at the moment, you know. So, l- play somewhere, you know, that you can get a bigger crowd great a, a, or yeah. a crowd that mm. looks, yeah, and the atmosphere is great, and then it just adds and enhances mm. all of that. I mean, this year we had the Women's FA Cup final on the BBC. I think it was almost 50,000 and it was the biggest crowd That's ever for the amazing, women's... You know, yeah. which is amazing and it didn't yeah. feel, even though it wasn't a packed Wembley, it didn't feel like, you know, we were in some kind of, you know, long mausoleum echo chamber type of thing <laughs> yeah. and was going on. It was, it was brilliant and that is huge growth in terms mm. of crowd but what they've done very well apart from the stadiums is price points you know make it attractive to families to go to make it something that is a you know it's not something that families gonna have to think like a premier league game oh you know the budget it's like okay yeah. we can yeah it's 10 pounds okay. ticket or it's free for kids or you know just to get that interest i'm yeah. taking my um there's a lionesses game coming up and i'm taking my one of my godchildren and my daughter and her her mum as well because i want the girls play their girls play football and i want them to see those women playing football at that level because it's if you can't see it you can't be it you know and i think that is what how the landscape has changed dramatically Mm -hmm. and 2012 was a big factor in that as well i think because there were so many women achieving whether it was rowing cycling gymnastics you know taekwondo there were women really achieving on the highest level Mm -hmm. nicola adams trailblazing in boxing and so all those women i think were important in letting young women know Mm. Sport is an option, yeah. you know, enjoying it. And also men, as we said, you know, yeah. enjoying those performances. It's so
0: true because it, it, it is about perception. It is about a sport feeling accessible for women. Because this, I'm always asked about good girls. And that's always the answer I give is that actually if they can only see women standing in front of the car um, and being judged solely on looks, mm. then they're not going to feel like it's a realistic mm. career opportunity to go into Formula One. But I mean, as recently as about eight years ago, a, a male television executive told me that a woman would never front formula one so it's a pretty really scary thought
1: that is but that i i honestly don't i i can't see that being a truce. you know i really well, no, I, mean, just... I
0: mean you know that the, there are men that have spent as little time sitting in an f1 car as i have yeah. but it doesn't mean that no. they're not credible in the sport
1: and i always cite as well when i first started out and like i first did match of the day um and there were some people who are a bit snidey in certain papers questioning where I'd played my football and I had to point out that at the time Richard Keyes who was fronting Sky and Des mm. Lynham mm. who was the regular match presenter had not, uh, also sim- had similar professional football experience to me yeah. i.e. none Uh-oh. you know and so so, it, are, you, are you good at what you do are you able to tell the story ask the right questions you know make the viewer feel that you're in control mm. and does that you know does it matter that you I mean you know there are some people oh it's just annoying but I, when people say that as a critique, you think, and there are annoying men who present sport, <laughs> it, yeah. and, you know. And so I think it's it's a slow. I always said, even like twenty years ago, it's going to be a slow tanker to turn, and mm. and I think it's actually turned a long way. Mm. And you're still going to have pockets that rise up and want to, you know, mm. say that. I remember there was a terrible article. I was just pre children. Kenny was still playing for Scotland, so it must have been the early two thousands. I think I just unmatched the day, and journalists did this piece in the in the Daily Mail. And honestly, some of the things that were written was just comically out of date now, and I think about how bad it was, about how it was the last bastion for men, um, and that we were entering into, you know, an area that should be, it's a bit like the potting shed, it should still be left for men, and and i (laughs) you know who can who can seriously credibly kind of put your hand up and go yeah I agree with that you know it's
0: but did you find a a pressure in a way because I I know I have if I'm completely honest to sort of really prove your worth and sort of almost oversell yourself Mm -hmm. that that you're there for a reason and you have to prove your knowledge Um, and because I know you as being very witty very funny and sometimes I want to see more of that humor And perhaps that's come through more now in your career because you're more relaxed relaxed. in it.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think you're right. And I think early on in my career, it's interesting you say that. My boss at um, ITV, Brian Barwick, who was an unbelievable champion for me, you know, he Mm. came to ITV from the BBC, pulled me in from Sky... Wanted me on Champions League. Wanted me, you know. He was really he had real great faith and belief in me. But he, one thing he, he said to me, stop loading your questions all the time. You're yeah. you're putting too much um, knowledge into your questions because you're worried that you know. And by doing so, one, you give the person nowhere to go. <laughs> the poor pundit sitting there going, "Well, you've just answered it. Yeah, you've said and, everything I had." And it's like he said, "It's cl- I know what you're doing." He yeah. said, "You're trying to yeah. prove to the viewer that yeah. you know this stuff." He said. Yeah don't um don't you don't have to do that you don't have to do but it takes almost another layer of confidence to do that because you you know you want the viewer to feel and he always was very very protective of the viewer sports viewers are very clever they're very knowledgeable Mm -hmm. they you know they they know what they like and they of course different platforms require different things you know if you're doing rugby on the six nations the bbc it's a very mass audience and they don't watch rugby all the time and mm. we have to be sometimes a little bit more general mm-hmm. and sometimes we have to explain things a bit more because mm. nine million people watch an england wales game well that's not the viewers that bt are getting for their weekly rugby mm. you know by a long 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 way. so where are those people coming from and we call them main eventers you know so the people that turn up for the olympics they turn up for big england games so they do it's perhaps really need a driven by
0: patriotism yeah, as yeah. opposed to a knowledge of the sport um,
1: or, or just they love a big event yeah you know yeah, right. and they love that idea of kind of an occasion and so th- you know they wouldn't necessarily listen to any of the eurovision song contest uh, contestants all year round but they like that you know that yeah, idea yeah. my mom i always think my mom's not a massive sports fan mm. by any stretch but she will watch those big event things mm. and she'll know what's going on so I think when you are broadcasting to that kind of audience, it's a different level mm, of, mm. you know, sometimes you just tease a bit more explanation out of your pundits. And then if you're doing something that's much more niche and has a lot more, um, you know your audience are going to be way more knowledgeable mm. and they don't want to, you know, it's it's learning kind of thing to but balance But I tell you
0: that. what, it's a, it's a struggle in F1 because there's a bit of both because you have to really... Um, cater for the petrol heads and those with a real depth of knowledge because it's a hugely technical sport Mm. and yet if you want to attract new fans to the sport you've got to put it it in layman's terms
1: Yeah, it's quite hard to do that is
0: hard because I think
1: Formula One I would say is one of the hardest in that respect because Mm. I would say the audience generally do know more going into it you know (laughs) they definitely know more than I do no not more than you they They know more
0: than the average sports fan but guaranteed there is an encyclopedic knowledge out there and you know if you put a stat out you will get a tweet within seconds. 0.3 yeah, seconds telling yeah. you actually in 1985, <laughs> you know, because there's such a depth of yeah. knowledge about Formula I One, you're also, right.
1: I, d- I would love to see the breakdown of the kinds of the people who go to Formula One, mm. how much other sport they watch, whether a Formula One very is... Very little. Yeah. Very little. From, from, from our, one, our experience. Yeah, I imagine Formula One is pretty much 90% of their sporting yeah. life. Yeah. And so that means that they have this very linear kind of yeah. um, interest, whereas... You know, people that watch Wimbledon will then watch a Six Nations match on yeah. the BBC. They'll watch, and they like the idea that they are these. They don't really want to get down deep into Andy Murray's backhand. You know, they're, they're. <laughs> I wonder what you could say then. <laughs> But they, you know, but they do want to know why, you know, why yeah. serves aren't working, and so I think it's it's a really interesting kind of um, the storytelling is yeah, interesting, yeah. and and I always feel like on the BBC there's a lot about the personalities that play the sports, which I think is really important yeah. for sports to grow, and I always worried that when. Domestic rugby went off mainstream television, uh, free to air television, that you, you wouldn't know the people that play it. You know, it's yeah. been a long time now since, and it's true. You know, even when Johnny Wilkinson was kicking drop goals for England in the World Cup in two thousand and three, you the average man on the street couldn't tell you played for the Newcastle Falcons. You know, yeah, and yeah. and so I think when you you know we try and build these, especially the minority sports, which the BBC has a duty to. I think you know keep pushing the minority sports, you, you're trying to tell the story, but also, you know, encourage people to learn who the, the characters are in it, which in F1 is is not a difficult job, is it? In the sense that the, the characters are huge, yeah. <laughs> you know, and they are household names, aren't
0: yeah. they? Well, and, not all of them, though. I no, mean, I I've suppose... walked through the airport with Sebastian Vettel and he's gone unnoticed. Really? Well, he's had his hood up and little backpack on. He just looks like a student. And he, but, you know, Lewis is slightly different. Yeah. But yeah, but I, I really feel that there are some fantastic characters further you know towards the back of the grid yeah, that, that actually forget. deserve more recognition yeah, you know we're yeah. talking about you know, I suppose I'm, the best I suppose drivers in the that, whole wide yeah. world
1: and I suppose within your uh, within the sport they're known but yeah you're right outside they, they could walk down my village mm. high street some of them and nobody would bat an eyelid uh, well outside. Daniel
0: Ricciardo got his hair cut in Brentford high street the other day <laughs> nobody had a clue Brilliant. dodgy barnet <laughs> though saying, <laughs> that, that would have saved a few quid as well yeah, one thing I do think is amazing is how you jump between sports because you know my life is F1 I I do a bit with other sports, with Sky and with Sky News, but you are able to go from weekend to weekend with such a depth and breadth of knowledge. That's well, I've bloody got three hard. Three
1: main sports, I'd say, which is the athletics, yeah. the um, rugby, and the um, which which we sadly don't have a, a lot of rugby and football, which yeah. is you know goes all year round. Well, that's and, enough. <laughs> yes, definitely is uh, enough. And um, and I love them all. Bit, you know, I get asked quite a lot by people which which do you prefer. Yeah. I just feel I feel really really blessed that I get to do the kind of. The absolute crescendo of so many of these sports you know whether it's World Cup Six Nations the Women's World Cup in the summer the athletics uh, you know whether it's the Diamond League events or the World the World Championships athletics is a joy to do but then when it's when the athletic season's over I'm ready to get into the football again you know I kind of feel very lucky that I have that um, no, but if I'm giving balance. you the opportunity to have one
0: viewing <laughs> of one sport, what would it be?
1: Oh, that's so, that is, yeah, that's so hard. What, so I'm only allowed to watch one sport yeah, ever that's again. It.
0: No, 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 not ever again, but it's kind of like the last supper. Right. You've got your, your last meal and company and you've got a big oh, screen. What's see? on it?
1: I, I probably would have said... Um, and all these faces are flashing in my mind now. Usain Bolt's going, choose me. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and Harry Kane's going, no, it's me. Yeah. Um, I, you know, pre-World Cup in Russia this year, I would have said, uh, I just... Six Nations, for me, is one of the most perfect sporting tournaments in the world yeah. out of any sport. Because it starts in the depths of winter. You know, it finishes in the glorious spring and you can have those days in Rome or even at Twickenham where the sun is blazing yeah, yeah, yeah. and people have got their their arms out again you know they've started in huge heavy coats and it is from week one it's an intense rivalry competition that to week there's no build up like the the Champions League it's a bit like I always feel now because it's so long I love the Champions League but it's like walking through molasses for a while because you know that actually the top two teams will eventually emerge from the group and now we're in the knockout stages and I used to love doing the Champions League but the Six Nations is that rivalry it's that regional kind of thing it's that intensity it's it's also the platform that those players know that they have opportunity to shine to become you know household names for a few months and I think they are very giving from a kind of broadcasting point of view because of that you know you mm. tend to get a bit more out of them although times are changing so I would have said oh I love the Six Nations I always get so excited when the Six Nations comes around but then this year in Russia I had such a good time with England it totally mm. like you know so I like, actually that, that World it.
0: Cup was just so brilliant that was so, very special yeah. so, so what happens in this household when Scotland
1: play England oh the, the kids are Scottish um, mm. and obviously Kenny's Scottish mm-hmm. and obviously I have Welsh heritage yeah. so um, so Ruben said he did get behind England at the World Cup because Scotland weren't there um, and Kenny definitely did he's like I'm not he's not tribal in that sense he will but if in Scotland play England in rugby it's, it's all about Scotland yeah, really? oh yeah it's all about Scotland so last year was just amazing you know we were all we were all watching it here. I think Kenny was up there and I was watching it with Ruben. Oh my gosh, Ruben and I were just besides ourselves. Yeah, because I knew how much he wanted Scotland yeah, to win. Yeah, yeah. And he was just loving it. Yeah.
0: I mean, I'd like to say it was the same in our house when England played Wales, but I just can't never support Wales over England at any stage I'm just going to make that point very clear now because I know that my husband will be listening to this podcast but there are don't get any ideas
1: are so good aren't yeah, they yeah, because yeah. inter-family you know yeah, you're yeah. the same we're the same it's that inter-family thing which um as well as you know the regional thing which is is just so brilliant and so pronounced
0: there's a there's a a, a sort of unwritten agreement already it's sort of tacit agreement in the family that Wolf and Willow should she want she's built like a prop forward i'll tell you that much but, but if wilf wants to play for um saints northampton saints that will be his chosen club because that means more to my dad than apparently even, oh really? than, even, than even, england. even england it's a close one though and wales means more to my father-in-law than club rugby Right. So that is a kind of a George North type scenario that, right. that they've envisaged. Okay. Well, it's so exactly a George North yes. scenario. Yes. Yeah. So that's what that's what they've decided. Wilf has no choice in the matter. <laughs> He's going to play on the wing for Northampton and Wales. Well, I
1: remember when we lived still lived in Richmond and we were getting ready for the school run and we were in our bedroom and I heard this noise. I looked out and Ruben was looking in a pane of glass outside preschool like you know eight in the morning singing Flower of Scotland to himself like looking at his reflection oh. back and Kenny went Oh, I gave him this smile that was just this knowing look like I've got him I've got him and um and just like last Sunday at training rugby training his club locally he was he came down in a Scotland shirt um which I didn't even know was a size that still fitted him and he's very he's very much yeah, and he'll right. say things like um who was he talking about the other day they were talking about um a mismatch physical mismatch in a sporting contest and he said, yeah, but. And one of the people was Scottish, and he said, yeah, but it doesn't matter, he's Scottish. So he's twice the size because of his Scottishness. Oh, and God. I was like, whoa! <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, so. Old um, yeah,
0: no. <laughs> so this sort of brings me nicely to how on earth have you managed to strike that balance between work and family? it's just a constant juggle and Mm. even you know it does get easier
1: as they get a bit older because they have a certain amount of independence and their days get longer at school Mm. and so they're 13
0: now for anyone who doesn't know gabby's got twins Twins.
1: yeah boy and a girl twin but you know when they were little we very much went into it like a team you know i wanted to carry on my career and kenny was building his business um just after rugby and he had you know luckily for him and for me he was a bit more flexible. He wasn't going into a job every day that started at eight and finished at six. So we've always had that lifestyle where I might work weekends, I might work evenings, and we kind of have to just balance that off against each other. And so I'm super organized in terms of looking ahead to the week and saying where I need anybody to be at any one time and all of that which is obviously massively boring and has no kind of you know there's no flying by the seat of your pants it's yeah. all very organized but it's got us to here you know it's got us to you know it's funny because I, I did actually
0: speak to Kenny before coming here today and he told me that your brain is like a tidy library his <laughs> is more like a teenager's bedroom <laughs>
1: Even this morning, that is so funny you said that because on a Friday morning early, we have, we do yoga. So it's like a one, but we don't do it together because he's got different physical needs to me. So the teacher comes and one of us has the early slot and one of us the next one. And we always see who's going into work where or whatever. And he said, oh, I've got a meeting in the city tomorrow at eight. And I said, well, that means you can't do yoga. And he went, oh, I'll let her. I said, when did you know about the meeting? He went, Monday. I went, it's Thursday. Yeah. When were you going to... And he was like, oh, but that's kind of like, you know, yeah. what goes on. <laughs> Whereas I would be immediately, send the text, let her know, yeah. you know. And that's a silly little example. But he's very... um He'll start a sentence about something he's about to tell me and then he'll be on to something else. And so his brain... I mean, hes dis- he's very dyslexic. Yeah. And I think the that is a a product of that but it also yeah. means that he has very creative kind of thinks all the time kind of out the box and his business partner always says you know that he kind of Kenny just throws out all these ideas and then they have to kind of all mop it up and work out yeah. how to put them into place and I suppose I'm more um I like I love I love being creative I love thinking yeah but you need space and I, I, yeah. I say to him sometimes even the train journeys I do to work that's where I sometimes sit and I have ideas and need that travel so I don't mind travel actually with my I mean our jobs are a lot there's a lot of travel but sometimes I don't want to listen to a desert island discs or watch a film I kind of like to just sit and think about things because we do jobs that are when you're on air you have to be thinking constantly about what you're doing all the time and you know you need that breathing space I think for your mind as much as anything else just to be able to get some kind of freshness into what you do which i think staying fresh in any industry
0: yeah.
1: is a challenge isn't it yeah. and finding the joy in things you know i had mm. such a great day at work yesterday i went up to liverpool to film a premier league show and um, we were behind the scenes at anfield and just one of those you know those lovely days you come away yeah. and working with good people and just appreciating what you do and yeah. i think um, i always remember a boss at sky um, who I used to knock on the door all the time asking him to do live football, and they wouldn't let me do any live football. I'd been there a year. I mean, why were they going to let me do live football? I used to knock on. the I door. would have let you do. football. <laughs> it. it was stupid of them yeah. not to let you do it. And he said, um, "Oh, Gabby, God, what are you here again?" And it was like seven o'clock in the evening. He was always working late, and I was doing Sky Sports News, uh, Sky Sports Centre, which was pre-news. And I said, um, oh, yeah, "Yeah, I just want to talk to you about what I'm going to do next." And he said, "Sit down." He goes, "Let me tell you something, Gabby. He goes, even a tightrope walker has days at work where it's all a bit dull. All right." <laughs> And I went, no, that's not all right. <laughs> and he's basically saying, you know, you're going to have days where you yes. feel... But I was so... I, just, I want to enjoy what you do. And I think when yeah, you have children,
0: amazing, you do
1: need to appreciate what you do because you yeah. don't want to feel... If I'm leaving the kids... For a couple of days, or even a you know four weeks to go to Russia, I want to feel that this is I'm doing a good job and I'm enjoying what I do.
0: And it's worth it. And you're doing something for the sake of the family. That's whenever I have a bit of a wobble because I sometimes do get anxious. Am I I
1: spending enough time? Am I doing enough? You know, yeah, things with them. Yeah, yeah. Because
0: and you know, mine are only three and two at the moment. I definitely get a sort of physical not of anxiety when I have to leave them and even if it's only for a
1: day and you don't and they don't mean it enough somebody says something yeah. and you think oh oh I should have could I is that why is that why he did this at school is that you know and oh. and I think you know we wouldn't be human if we didn't think that but I hope we are able to just give ourselves a little cut ourselves a little bit of slack and yeah. I think as soon as I started to give cut myself a bit of slack quite early on actually mm. I felt I thought oh well I'm as long as I'm at peace with the decisions i make for the family then
0: for the family i think that's the key and that's what owen's always saying to me is that um you're you're doing this for all of us Mm. not just a pursuit of your own kind of selfish desires this is actually for all of us and and that's why a parity in in a relationship is so important and it does seem that you have that you've really struck that well with kenny i think we value what
1: the other does there's no no person's stuff is more important you know and he's very sharing you know so he'll come home and tell me about projects and things he's working on and he's much more um he wants to chew things over and I you know I really do sometimes I have to stop and actually tell him how well he's done on something because you you do you can Mm. just take kind of your continued journeys for granted can't you and I think you're right it is that parity but and appreciation and respect and it's not about monetizing it it's not about you know you can't quantify it in terms of success mm-hmm. if the person is doing something whatever it is that they value and they want to keep doing then then it's important for their well-being isn't yeah, it and yeah, it's important yeah. for your mental well-being and, 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 and
0: very important for you to acknowledge it as a wife as well absolutely a, and, and I husband. think if I turned around and said
1: I don't want to work anymore. It's mm. not fulfilling me. It's not what I want to do. Kenny would go, okay, what should we, you know, what do you want to do? What should Aww. we do? Because I think it, the idea that, but he knows I wouldn't yeah. do that. But I'm idea, never going to do that. <laughs> I can't ever imagine you well, We both always talk about, we were looking at this old couple walking across the street the other day and they were kind of shuffling a bit and I was waiting. I said, do you think we'll be like that? <laughs> and he, he was like, no, because you'll probably be working somewhere. And I'll be on my own shuffling down the road.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, I tell you what, I don't know how you did Strictly together. Tell me how that worked because I can't even train in the garden with Owen. He drives me mad because he tries. He's so bossy and he tries to train me, and I'm not interested in it.
1: Yeah, but he's he knows what he's talking about, doesn't he? Yeah, well, he claims to, <laughs> but he does have some. You know, he's got some history and some. Maybe. And so, <laughs> whereas I don't believe he does. But Kenny, anyway, Kenny went into Strictly. Be like if there's a stage before novice <laughs> and a stage before beginner. You know, he was so. Uh, far out of his comfort zone and I was just massively in my comfort zone yeah. and loved it I remember the day before I went out going home after training and getting in the shower and thinking I and you know they have those grounding moments sometimes where you just go I am living my dream this yeah, is amazing yeah. I love this and then bang it's gone yeah. you know and he on the other hand was thinking please let tonight be to the end <laughs> please take the spotlight away from me but then the funny thing was when I went out he just got this kind of bit between his teeth like oh, oh I'm gonna you know I've got to make the most of this yeah, and, yeah. and so I think we were also because we were paired with a married couple that also helped the whole yeah. kind of curse of Strictly thing because You know, Kenny and Anna got on brilliantly. James and I were kind of, we're quite similar, James and I. So when we were together as a, you know, as a four, we hardly trained in the same place the same time because we all had different diaries but i think that helps the whole he's not a jealous person kenny anyway mm. Mm. so he's very i mean god knows what he would have taken for you know because he'd come home and say things to me like "Oh, i was i was dancing with all today, and she fell and i actually grabbed her by you know her lady bits and i was like <laughs> i mean, he said something else and i was like oh oh great yeah and or the time that oh i accidentally grabbed a boob you know but he's so kind of like you know it's <laughs> so, what an experience type yeah. thing whereas i was like first time i danced with james i remember thinking because they, they they pull you in and you're literally going kind of pubic bone to pubic bone yeah, in yeah. The, when it's you're holding. It's very intimate. It is. Yeah, I'm, you can't see what I'm doing right now but I'm doing a kind of hold and I was like 10 minutes after meeting him and I remember thinking, I haven't been this close to another man for about 10 years. Because <laughs> I think we were about three at the time. Yeah. Um, and I was like, whoa, this is going to be interesting. But then it becomes your job yeah, and what yeah, you're doing. Yeah. and so.
0: But are you handled it really well. Because I remember you saying, I went into this competition wanting to be the best dancer in the country and I've left it not even the best in our household it's <laughs> <laughs> a great way of handling it it must hurt I mean, oh it my
1: gosh I mean like you know Kenny if he was now, here now would be singing let it go um... and <laughs> <laughs> and for he dined out on that you know if we are doing oh, a charity event easy. together yeah. or something he'd say oh you know this is um, this is Gabby she came fourth and strictly come down <laughs> and I came tenth or, or you know yeah. sorry I, I lasted ten weeks she lasted four weeks so he loved the fact that he went so much further like so much further than me yeah
0: so and funny. the kids like that too that's actually. so funny um, now just to, to round things off there's a series of questions that I ask and because we've been nattering away I haven't even weaved any of them into our chat <laughs> but I want to know a couple of things um, do you feel that there was a defining moment in your life was it perhaps losing your brother was it joining sky was it meeting kenny do you feel that that perhaps there's a series of defining Mm. moments but was there one single moment where you thought i get it now and this is what i want to do with the rest of my life
1: Um, in that respect losing my brother wouldn't be the defining it was a defining moment i think in terms of um how i was going to live my life you know and wanting to be positive and seize every day and not waste opportunities and be ready for opportunities Mm. I always remember a very wise guy I used to work with when I first went to Sky he was a, a guy called Ed Percival who sadly died a couple of years ago and he used to, he was brought in by sky to train up presenters and he became a mentor for me through my whole career and he always said you're going to get opportunities in your career you've got to be ready for them mm. because you don't want your dream position to come along and you're not ready and mm. he was and i think that's the same in any kind of sport and mm. you know you want to be ready for those moments and the kenny always has this thing about um if it's not for you um you if, if it's if it's meant for you, you know you'll be able to you'll be able to get that moment. And mm. I, I haven't I, um, I haven't said that correctly. He's going to
0: curse you for that. Yeah, you know, he gonna gonna say, think, so. I say it every yeah. day, and you've <laughs> bloody forgotten. <laughs>
1: <laughs> he is. He'll come back to me yeah. in a minute. But basically, it's about. Um, being ready for those kinds of opportunities, yeah. but but actually uh, much more eloquent than yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, we'll edit that bit out. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, Kenny will love it that I actually stumbled that so badly. <laughs> um, but I think that is that is what perhaps my brother's death was mm. for me. Uh, obviously, it was truly horrendous, and the, you know, there's a family to go through. But in terms of my life, kind of goals and where I wanted to be and what mm. I was going to do, it wasn't so much there were specifics. It was more about the feeling of mm. how you live your life, mm. and and I think that um we were right actually to mention sky because that did take me very much on a path that i you know wasn't going on at that point i was working in local radio and i graduated and i was feeling like an itchy feet i wanted to do something else and it was out of the blue you know when something comes completely you haven't had to kind of ring up you know and try and get yourself in the door something came to me completely out of the blue and that was amazing Mm. you know to to have the opportunity at the time but maybe again i was ready i was ready you know i was ready to go and i was ready to to seize that that chance to drive myself down to london with a car you know barely full that was my worldly possessions and turn up in richmond rent a flat and with no kind of friendship base no Mm. you know no mates or anything just to get on that journey um so i think that was probably career-wise was was a really really important opportunity and sky obviously was growing 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 it was only a few years old and it was Mm. this place at the very infancy of you know a huge explosion in the way that we watch sport so it was very exciting Mm. to be there at that time really really we had sky at home because of the football but it was only going four years i knew what sky was because my dad watched it all the time but it wasn't in every household it wasn't talked about like it is now Mm. we didn't have a cycling team you know (laughs) um it was it was at the start and um i think it'd only a few years been you know there have been the square the b sky b and the merger Mm. and everything so it was um a very important certainly a very important period and you know you mentioned kenny that definitely i think you when you meet your life partner and the person that you're going to grow with for the rest of your life that is really you know a huge huge moment because we met at 25 he was mm. 26 mm. you know if we live till we're 90 you know
0: <laughs> that's a that's a long journey yeah. together so he, he did actually tell me that he saw you he saw you in a bar and went back to his mates said oh my god I've just seen Gabby Roslin." Yeah, yeah I'm chatting her up
1: he said I'm chatting Gabby Roslin up around the corner and Simon <laughs> Shaw who used to play with him at Wasps looked round the corner and went uh, no, you're not. That's not Gabby Roslin. That's Gabby Yorath. She's on Sky, and um, and he went, yeah, whatever. Um, <laughs> so, good. so good. Yeah, he was disappointed. I didn't know Zig and Zag, but you know, that's one for the young for the older viewers, the older <laughs> yeah. listeners.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, now, is there anything that keeps you awake at night? Are you a warrior? No, I sleep fairly well. I, I'm I'm quite
1: lucky in that respect because Kenny's definitely a much more agitated sleeper. He's got stuff mm. on his brain. But I think I've learnt over the years. I definitely went through, you know, when my brother died and I went to university... I didn't sleep as well and i i think i probably had some anxiety in me that Mm. you know had to come out i saw used to see an acupuncturist regularly when i first came to london and she helped me kind of understand my mental health and i think that's really important to to actually articulate it as mental health because Mm. that's what it is and Mm. i think if you don't sleep well at night and you're waking up all the time that's your brain's not allowing you to you know to close down so you need to have a look at why that is and um and so i think i think like any parent you know you're if you, you could get yourself into a complete state of neurosis and anxiety thinking about your children their future oh, yeah. and you know and knowing th- what my family went through oh. but I don't want to you know you can't That what it taught me was you just don't know what, what life no. has in store you know
0: do you know I, I'm left with a, a sort of deeper sense of sadness though that for, for you and and your surviving siblings um, to Daniel that the marriage broke down as well because obviously horrific for your parents but for you for you to kind of have that double whammy albeit you know Mm. many years apart you know it was almost like you didn't deserve that you wanted to keep the family together yeah
1: and it's and I think you know especially the father relationship is really sad for me because Mm. I know you're very very close to your dad and I've met Mm. you with him at rugby match and you know when I see people with their dads Mm. kind of in our and you're younger than me but in our kind of age group you Mm. know and they have supportive dads who enjoy their lives and enjoy their grandchildren Mm. I really miss that but I can't get hung up on that in the sense of you know because kenny's such an amazing dad Mm. i know that my daughter that lois will always have this amazing bond and he will pay an interest in whatever she does the rest of her life Mm. there'll be never a time when he's not across you know he goes to all her riding shows and he's really you know passionate about what she does and i think that you know that's really important to me that um that we nurture that because Mm. i do you know I think, oh, I wish I had a kind of, you know, I could pick the phone up and go, oh, come down and take the kids here and help us with, you know. Do you
0: feel you could have done that had Daniel not died? Do you think I something changed I think if they changed together him, as a couple. Right.
1: Then, yeah, because my mum was right. very much driving yeah. force and things. Yeah. I mean, I've, you know, my mum will come down and I'm very close to her and she's, but, you know, she's obviously kind of got, everybody's scattered almost, you mm. know, so because of that. And so it does change. Yeah. Um, it does change everything. And I think, yeah, I think you're right that to lose your... Your sibling is horrendous, and mm. then the family breakup was another layer of, of, of sadness for us all to well, deal it's like with.
0: Another bereavement, yeah, isn't it? Well, really? You,
1: you well, I remember my mum's fortieth. All four of us there. You know, beautiful picture of the, the six of us as a family. And if you think that just two years later, if you'd said at that point what was happening, we were all on our paths in life. You know, I was doing my A levels. My sister was a model. Daniel was destined for great things in football. Jordan was just a wee little cute four or five year old. You'd have thought we were on these, you know, real kind of trajectory, and everybody mm. was going to be. My dad was managing Wales. Everything was looking so positive, mm. and you know, life didn't pan out from that day on the way that we thought it would. So, and them as a couple were so strong, and you know, everybody mm. enjoyed going out with them and being with them so I think it does teach you to really value and respect what you have and Mm. you know and that you need to keep working on all those relationships Mm. and you need to keep working on even just being a parent needs constant Mm. evaluation doesn't it
0: so based on all of that what advice would you give to your younger self or indeed what advice are you giving to Lois about and Ruben, not just, <laughs> but but just you know maybe from the path you've taken as as a woman in the man's world. I said it. <laughs> Damn it. Uh, no, I don't mean it for a minute because it's not. Although there are predominantly more men. But anyway, yeah. um, what advice would you give to your younger self? What's what's the kind of one little gem? Oh, one gem. Um, well, could be two. <laughs> I mean, but get it right, okay? This yeah, time, get yeah. the mantra right. Yeah.
1: I won't. You know that's not in the edit. Remember. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> um, I think. I always, it's interesting you say that now because they're 13. Obviously, mm. we're in the puberty years. Oh, my God. And I all, the one thing I've been saying to Lois, because um, she is kind of, you know, worrying about things that were going on with her body and the changes. And I said, look, I wish I hadn't spent so much time worrying myself about what was going to happen to me you know all those landmark things like you know your first period your bra your mm. first boyfriend the first time you have sex all those things mm. I just wish I'd let things just roll out a bit more and not mm. I was so worried about growing up and how I think as I was the eldest of four and I said please don't don't waste any time worrying mm. about growing up because you are gonna it's gonna happen mm. but don't add to your anxiety and you know I didn't have any kind of candid chats like that with my mom so hopefully you know, I've reassured her that it's all going to be fine. But that isn't the kind, I suppose, that I definitely would say to myself, chill out about all that. <laughs> because there's nothing you can do about yeah, it. Yeah. Um, but maybe, you know, then it changes things, doesn't it? If you, I was going to say, maybe I'd said to myself, you don't have to rush, you know, when I was, yeah, you know, yeah, in my late yeah, teens, yeah. you don't need to maybe rush. Maybe chilling out
0: too much yeah. wouldn't have taken you on the path you yeah, know, so. and it might yeah. not
1: have been the way yeah. I would have gone. So, you know, I, you just, it's very hard, isn't it, to... Um, to say I tell you what I would have done this is really trivial considering all the things we've talked about I wish I'd know more about nutrition when I was like you know in my teens yeah. you know because in the sport that I did it was all about being abstemious very low body weight and And we achieve that through very unhealthy diets, you know. And obviously now I know so much more about food, and I eat really well, and you know, and I train, and I I just God, if I'd had that knowledge when I was actually at the top of my sport, (laughs) and I trained half the time feeling weak because I probably hadn't had enough food, and you know, all that kind of thing. That you think, oh, what do you have to eat today? An orange. Oh, and I'm going to train for six hours. You know,
0: but that it was a different era, though, wasn't it? It totally was.
1: But I just wish we'd had because now modern gymnastics, you know, they're very different. They've got the nutrition, Mm. they've got the supplements everything else but the way to achieve your ideal body type in the 19 late 1980s was to eat an orange you know and uh i've got competition in two weeks oh well i better go down to 400 calories a day you know and but it was never a kind of um long-term mental body kind of dysmorphia or anything it was much more Practical. It was kind of like, mm-hmm. oh, I remember talking to my auntie about it, and she Oh, well, "I see what you mean." <laughs> and not, not, oh God, you're not eating very much, and um, and I didn't have a long-term kind of issues afterwards with it, thankfully. But I wish I'd had the nutrition because I would have just been healthier, yeah, and I'd have yeah. been probably better at what I did. Yeah, and, but come you on, know. you look
0: all right now. You're oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, very kind. <laughs> you, you, you pulled it back. Yeah,
1: but, but I think when I met Kenny, I was still not very good on nutrition. I remember him saying that I had a box of waffles because I had a housemate who liked waffles and some loganberry berry tea believe it or not uh, and a bottle of champagne that was all i had in my house because he prophetic. came around for breakfast and said <laughs> yeah, yeah and um so i wish i wish i'd known more about health and nutrition
0: okay. to well, my young. sure your kids yeah. will know everything then i'm they sure will,
1: they will benefit from that Brilliant.
0: yeah gabby thank you so much for your time it's lovely to see you today and you too thank you natalie thank you well, I hope you enjoyed hearing from Gabby. I certainly love talking to her and could have chatted all day long. Um, had to whiz off and get Will from nursery in time. So wouldn't have been a very good mum if I had talked any longer. But there you go. A cup of tea and a chat another day, I'm sure. So give me your feedback. Let me know what you thought. Um, let me know you think about the podcast as a whole. Do tweet me at Natalie Pinkham. Love to hear your thoughts. I've uh, been having some um, lovely messages so far. Um, request from quite a few of you for more F1 related podcasts and I promise those are coming up very soon Um, in the meantime uh, in the pipeline we've got uh, Ben Fogle and Tamara Eccleston so that should be good listening and uh, yeah let me know what you think rate review subscribe and until next week I will uh, bid you farewell